Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Stand episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. Well, it's kind of a lie. We're not covering The Stand this week. Christina is finishing up part three of the book review, and that'll be out next week. And that will be covering the third book, The Stand. As well as our overall thoughts on everything from The Stand and Stephen King themes in his work, our ratings for everything. We're just going to finish up the conversation. It's going to be a fun third episode. But in the meantime, we didn't want to leave you hanging, so we're going to give you something special. It is another Patreon-exclusive release that we are putting out to all of our CKC channels. We figured we'd keep it in the King universe. So you will be getting our review on Gerald's Game, the 2017 movie. And I believe we covered this in 2019 when it came to Netflix. On Patreon, that's yep. right. So, Clatchers, if you were wondering what we were talking about when we said follow us over at Patreon, this is one of the tiers that you get. This is the movie review tier, where most months, Clatchers vote on what movie we are to watch and review. Lately, they haven't been voting because COVID, there's no new movies coming out. So we've been kind of going to our back catalog of favorites to watch. Yeah, fun throwbacks. We've done things in the past also like the ongoing coverage of the Harry Potter series. We've done some streaming things. And we've gone back to the occasional Stephen King movie just because it's fun. This is one of our favorites, and we had a great time both watching the movie and reviewing it. So we hope that you will enjoy the podcast. And if you like what you hear and you want to help Christine and myself out furthering this podcast for many years to come, and you want more content from us, check us out over at patreon.com forward slash CKC podcast. Join us at any tier. The first tier is $3 and you get the coffee break episodes every month. Then you have $5, which is still less than a Starbucks cup of coffee. You get the coffee break and bonus podcast. And then the final tier, which is $10, you get all of that and the movie review. Plus, there is a huge back catalog by now. So if you join at this moment, you will have tons to listen to. There's sure to be a tier that's right for you. Head on over and check it out coffeeclatchcrew.com and click on our Patreon page. And if you can't do that, then just subscribe to this channel so you can see what other fun things we have in store for the future and give us a quick rate and review on iTunes. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Patreon exclusive movie review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And this month we're covering Gerald's Game. It's the time of Stephen King. Next month will be it, too. I know people had mixed feelings on this, and Jason, you had mixed feelings on watching this movie that I had to drag you into it. I gotta tell you, you wanted to watch it, and I was like, be a good boyfriend, watch what she wants to watch, (laughs) and then up to 20 minutes into the show, my face hurt because I realized I was grimacing the whole time, and I was like, I'm not having fun, I'm miserable, Stop the torture. You were ready to bail. Legit ready to bail. And it wasn't even because I didn't enjoy what was going on. It was very intriguing. It was that I was so stressed out from the drama. But once I remembered, you're an adult. This is a movie. Enjoy this drama. You're not actually going through it. I really opened up to the fact that this movie, which takes place in one room predominantly, is so brilliantly done and shot. And acted. And right, predominantly with one to two actors. The majority of the action happens within the first 10 minutes of the movie. So really, it's incredibly impressive that they were able to keep you hooked 
And it's a testament to how good the movie is that you're feeling that way. Ten minutes into it, I felt the same way the first time I watched it. This is stressful. Yeah. And then it goes from that to disturbing as they start to get into the psychological aspects, though I think that's what King does really well. And King writes amazing characters. You're able to fully empathize and get into the mind of Jesse, and that's why you're so scared. You are that woman tied into the bed wondering, what the hell am I going to do to get out of here? (laughs) You had all the same reactions throughout that I did. Well, just bring the cuff up over the bedpost. Just break the bedpost. Just do this or that because we're putting ourselves in that position, right? And that's great writing. We're also going to talk later about how Flanagan, who wrote and directed this, does such a beautiful job, A, of keeping you hooked, B, of exploring what's an incredibly internal story. In fact, many people had called this story unfilmable. Oh, wow. Because of how tough the adaptation would be, that it's all not only first-person perspective, but taking place in Jesse's mind the entire book long. I could see that as a tremendous mountain to climb, just knowing how Stephen King writes. Keep in mind, I've only probably read a book and a half of Stephen King, but it's so internal. And the medium of writing really blossoms when it comes to the narrator's mind. And I can imagine, I didn't read this book, I can imagine how much meat, how much this storyline was dependent on what's going on in Carla's head while strapped and trapped. So she has to be an amazing actress, number one. I mean, getting Carla Gugino and Bruce Greenwood was the first and biggest step towards making this successful, I think. But then Flanagan has to add visual interest. He has to intersperse the present with her flashbacks to the past. He has to make things aesthetically interesting on screen. He has to keep the pace moving, and I think he nails all of that. This is an example of when a Stephen King adaptation works well. They're able to take what's written on a page and not just do a direct reproduction of it on screen, because that's not going to be great, but figure out how to make it into a visual medium. A lot of the Stephen King movies that don't work, they never figured out how to do that. Flanagan made a lot of great decisions, starting from, of course, story-wise, which we were saying, but... Runtime. You don't need to make this long. 103 minutes was perfect. Also, the balance between realism and surrealism. The whole time with the Moonlight Man, I was back and forth. He's not real. He Mm -hmm. is real. He's not real. Oh, my God. I don't know what's going on. How about the fact that Jesse and Gerald, the fake ones in Jesse's head, were so entertaining, almost comforting, even when they're being vindictive? Yeah. And with them, too, you don't know if they're real or not at first. And this is exactly the way something would happen inside of the mind of somebody who is, A, yes, going a little mad. She says that to herself at one point. B, starving, malnourished, dehydrated, see alone in a room with no external stimuli except the occasional thing that is doubly traumatic, and that's the dog coming in. We'll talk about that Uh. in a minute. The way you start to view things in the world would get a little shifty and wonky, and they're really able to bring that out, and we'll talk about the manifestations and how they were different in the books versus TV. But let's start off with some stats. As we said, the screenplay was written by Mike Flanagan and also Jeff Howard, directed by Flanagan, produced by Trevor Macy. IMDb is giving this a 6.6, harsh IMDb, because Rotten Tomatoes is giving it a 91%. Yeah. Uh, It's weird. Now, I understand people can have opinions, but it's weird when these top websites are so 
opposite of each other. To me, and I may be going overboard with this, it kind of devalues it. If they can be that off from each other, do they really count? Do they matter? Yeah, how much weight do we give that as a podcaster? And normally, I tend to think IMDb is way more accurate. My grading scores are very close, where Rotten Tomatoes tends to feel a little high on a lot of things, or when they hit them hard, then they drop down to a 60%, and I'm like... I I can't really trust this. So it's weird that they went 6.6. Metacritic splits the difference there at a 77%. But almost all the critics' reviews were glowingly positive. Hmm. They had certain problems with it, and some people don't know how to feel about the ending. But overall, they're praising Flanagan as well as Gugino. One says, this film is Flanagan's most accomplished to date. The result of years he spent giving a damn about his characters and their anguish. He's so good at it, he makes it look easy. And the second says, Gerald's game is able to please King fans and at the same time propose a film that is perfectly maintained as a meticulous thriller and horror artifact. Oh, wow. And Stephen King giving his own stamp of approval on it. That means a lot. It sure does. Now let's talk for a second about Flanagan. In the past, he's directed Ouija, Before I Wake, Oculus, and Haunting of Hill House. Well, there you go. We just recorded, prepare, I'm totally throwing us off base here. We just recorded our Coffee Break episode, and Melly asked us, what are some films we wish or we want to cover? Haunting of Hill House. I forgot that one. Yeah. That would be top on the list. And you can really see the style come through. When you and I discussed that amongst ourselves, we said this is different from typical horror for a couple of reasons. Number one, they dive so deep into all the characters, you get a real mm. full understanding of them, their psychological backgrounds. It's not just about jump scares. That stuff is in there as it's in Gerald's game, the times where they want you to just be afraid at what's going bump in the night. But what's scarier is what's going on inside their minds. And he is able to toy to just weave the supernatural through it in a beautiful way. Yeah. And Stephen King does the same thing in his writing. So my feeling, keep bringing back Flanagan to do Stephen King. He seems to really nail it. In fact, he has written and directed Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Shining. I'm excited for that. Set to be released this November and starring none other than Ewan McGregor as grown-up Danny Torrance. I'm having oh a little bit of a love affair here. <laughs> do you think he's going to say red rum or do you think uh, that'd be too corny? I'm trying to think back to the book, and I don't think he ever says it in Dr. Sleep. Okay. But he might have flashbacks to young Danny, which would be cool to try to pull in there from the original Shining movie. Those of you who have read Dr. Sleep, I'm not going to ruin anything. It's not one of the most beloved Stephen King novels. It's one of very few sequels and long-awaited at the time because everybody was wondering what happened to Danny. The overall premise of it is a little bizarre, but I enjoyed, again, the way the characters unfolded and the relationships between them. And the hallmark of good Stephen King, to me, years after reading this book, there's still snippets of scenes that I can see vividly in my head, even though this hasn't been translated to film yet. I remember from reading it. That's dangerous, though, because the film will not resemble what's in your head. And you're going to have to fight that. Usually, although Flanagan, again, doing a brilliant job here, those who have managed to figure it out, the It portrayals so far have been right on for me. Mm. When did that book come out, Dr. Sleep? Were you a kid? Probably. It's been a long time. I didn't get into Stephen King when I was a kid. Okay. 
it wasn't until about college, I think I was very resistant because I had this unfair idea of what Stephen King books were. I pictured something very, very different. And thank goodness, my first foray into King was his best novel, The Stand. Okay. I was going to yell at you. I was going to be like, what the hell's wrong with you? Oh, I would a, a have. A kid in high school reading this shit. In seventh grade, sixth grade, I read Roots for oh, the first wow. time. You're, you're crazy. So my parents were of the mind. She's an advanced reader, and she doesn't scare easily. So mm-hmm. let her read whatever the heck she wants to. It certainly developed, I think, a lot of things for me in a good way early on. My imagination, my critical thinking, my vocabulary. For sure. They open all that up. And that's why I push myself to read a little more nowadays. But back then, looking at a Stephen King book, the thickness alone scared me. I, I was like, he is that. a scary writer. Look how thick that book is. <laughs> See, I never had that feeling. I loved books and words so much. I wouldn't buy something if it was thinner than a certain volume. Because I said, I'm just going to be getting into it and the story is going to be over. Okay. And in fact, I looked for people who wrote trilogies or multiple books along the same line. So King would have been a natural for me, but I guess based off the movies I had seen, things like Cujo and Carrie, I was thinking this is going to be more generic horror and I'm not so much into that, but the writing is so different. But let's come back to Flanagan for a minute and talk about his feelings on Gerald's game. He says reading it was such a visceral experience. I really yearned for it to exist as a film. I used to carry a copy of the book to general meetings when I first moved to L.A., just in case someone would ask me what my dream project was. It took me years to crack it and even longer to get permission to work on a screenplay. When I began production on the film last fall, it occurred to me I'd been thinking about that particular film for literally half my life. Wow. And I think he said starting around age 19. But he also talks about the difficulty in translating. Quote, the book as it's written is really impossible to adapt. We had to find a mechanism to make the story cinematic while also being faithful. In the book, Gerald's dead and gone by page 10, and the rest of the tale takes place entirely in Jesse's head, a stream of consciousness. To make that visually interesting, we turned the inner monologues into an outer monologue. And it was Stephen King himself who suggested, how about part of that is Gerald? I like that. Because there is no Gerald's manifestation in the book for Jesse. Okay. Now, in the book... The facets take on three manifestations. Each are a part of her personality. You have Goody Burlingame, or the good wife, which is a puritanical version of Jessie. It's the one that, yes, gets her through each day and keeps her level, but mainly by denial, repression. Nothing's wrong here. Everything's fine. Don't worry about that dog over there. You're just imagining that happening. Then you have Ruth Neary, an old college friend of hers, who is tough and capable, a little bit more like the tough Jessie in the movie. You know, she's able to keep pushing her through, but at times she gets almost ruthless with her. Do you want to die chained here on these handcuffs? And finally, you have Nora Callinghan, her ex-psychiatrist, who is guiding, gives some knowledge, maybe a little bit of the Gerald character in that she has to give some exposition dumps. So in the book, these are actually three different characters, you're saying? They're the three different people she's imagining in her head talking to her. Okay. And saying things like we see, but she doesn't visualize them in front of her the way they do in the film. But in the film, it's just Bruce and Carla. Correct. Being those three characters. Kind of a, a mishmash of like the it. three. 
I, I like the simplicity of that. I'm glad they went that route and didn't introduce like three random characters. In the book, even, it was a little bit random. I get it because her psychiatrist, okay, somebody important to her, an old close friend of hers, but we don't know those people outside of Jesse's mind. Yeah. We've seen Jesse and Gerald, and their relationship was a big part of it. Once he dies, we don't get any more of that. But by seeing them on screen, they're able to start digging into how did things fall apart between them? What happened here? And there's a little more meat on that in the film. Oh, don't say that. A little more meat on that? For the dog? Oh, <laughs> we'll get there. Here's a fun fact. Speaking of Haunting of Hill House, three of our actors here also starred in that show. I don't know about you, but I really love when a director gets comfortable and falls in love with their characters or their actors and reuses them. Especially when they're good actors. And I'm going to say something here. I mean, both Carla Giugino and Bruce Greenwood are big-time actors, but not huge. Yeah. And Henry Thomas, I think even a step below that, before Haunting of Hill House, I don't know how many people would have known of him. But they're all fantastic. (laughs) So if you've seen what they can do, yes, bring them back. Give them roles. And especially Henry Thomas, I mean, this is not a great or easy role for him to play. Not at all. (laughs) What is so interesting is that Carla plays the mom. Let's see if I can figure this out. Mm -hmm. Carla plays the mom in The Haunting of Hill House. You don't see her much. Correct. Her name is Olivia in Haunting. Tom plays the dad. Young Hugh Crane. Right. Young mom, young dad, because in Haunting, we also get a past present type of situation with different actors. So in the past, when they're young as a family, those two are young mom and dad. Kate Siegel, who plays Sally in Gerald's Game, is the daughter in The Haunting of Hill House. Correct. Theodora Crane, the one who wears the gloves all the time? Yes. Now in Gerald's Game, (laughs) Sally is the mother of Jesse. Yep, in the flashbacks, the young mom. So she goes from being daughter to mom. And Tom remains the father. And Carla goes from being mom to daughter. <laughs> it's so crazy. It's, it's kind of fun the way they mix that all up. Except, yeah, Tom just gets to be dad and dad. <laughs> and all amazing actors, we're going to talk more about that in a minute. One more fun fact. At the start of the movie, when Jesse and Gerald are driving in the car on their way there, there is a radio news report that can be heard discussing the grave robber's latest crime. So we get tip-offs to the Moonlight Man that early on. I didn't pick it up. And just didn't pick it up. Yeah. I was too busy being uncomfortable. <laughs> well, in fact, there are so many good Easter eggs, and I'm sure these aren't all of them, but we're going to go through real quick for a section on Stephen King Easter eggs. The woman from the dream that Jesse describes standing over a well during an eclipse. Do you remember that? It seems maybe a little out of place if you don't have background on this. I think she was ter- telling Gerald about it. I had a dream about this woman. She was standing in a, over a well. The eclipse was behind her. Well, that's because this is a direct reference to another Stephen King book, Dolores Claiborne, where Dolores is the main character. And there are parallel events that are supposed to be taking place during this same eclipse oh, on wow. opposite sides of the lake. Holy shit, that's cool. So that's pretty cool, right? That in this one, Jesse dreamed of her as a child. Wow. Gerald, at some point, and this was just an overt one, refers to the dog as Cujo. Oh, that's right. Fed yes. all our Kobe beef to, to Cujo out there. <laughs> uh, when Gerald, at some point, says, all things serve the beam, this is a reference to Stephen King's Dark Tower series. Now, one of very few 
King novels I have not read. I tried many times because so many people will argue this. It's either The Stand or The Dark Tower they say is the best. But a lot of people can't get into The Dark Tower, and I'm one of them. And I heard there was a movie adaptation recently that failed miserably. So I have very low incentive now to go back to that. If I remember correctly, I believe we had a Clatcher suggest that we review that. And we were reviewing something else. And then they wrote back to us, I'm so glad you didn't review it because it sucked. That's what I heard, that it was a huge disappointment to King fans. It was long, long awaited. It would be as though they had never done the stand before and were doing it the first time. But the populace is very split. And I just couldn't get into the whole gunslinger narrative. I I guess it gets more complex as it goes along, but I had a rough time getting started there. Maybe it's more boy It feels like it to me, if you're going to split it that way. Moving along, though, Jesse talks about the Moonlight Man's bag of bones when he holds out his offering and they got the bones with the jewelry on it. Yeah. This is a reference to another novel of King's called Bag of Bones, which I actually thought was really good. Flanagan, for sure. He's a big fan of Stephen King. I love when they do this, when they know enough about the universe to tie it in like that. I wonder, I wish I could be a fly on the wall when Stephen King's watching this movie for the first time. Is he laughing? He's like, oh my God, good one, Flanagan. Or you is know? he like, uh, I don't know, that was a little too obvious. Uh, I don't know. I, uh, I don't think so, not so with these. so anxious to hear, in fact, <laughs> this kind of sucks, but while King was supportive of all of this and loved the film, he emailed Flanagan, but never spoke to him and never met with him directly. I'm sure he's an odd man. That's got to be such a disappointment. Oh, yeah. To Flanagan. Maybe. Or maybe, you know, never meet your idols. Mm, True. Well, last Easter egg, Gerald says, we should take our medicine as a reference to The Shining where Jack keeps telling Danny it's time to take your medicine. I can't remember if that was ever in the movie, but it's in the books nonstop. Come and take your medicine, Danny. Oh, wow. I don't remember. Oh, it was really good. So that's everything I found, but I'm sure that there probably are more. There's and there's probably a million. Probably other Stephen King movies where they do this. They, they build in Easter eggs, and that's fun. Let's move it along to characters. We'll start off with Jesse Berlingame. Weird last name. Yeah, but I wonder if that's supposed to be a reflection on the title. Ah, Gerald's, you know, Gerald's Game. Game. Which we didn't speak about is so interesting. The movie's not really about Gerald. At all. And she gets stuck in this position, yes, due to his game that he wants to play. Mm-hmm. It could just as easily have been titled something related to Jesse because she's the main character and the protagonist throughout the whole movie. But a big part of the story she struggles with is her abuse, her shackling, all of these metaphorical things at the hands of men who were supposed true. to love her. Uh, I like so that. I thought that was really apropos and including right down to her handcuffing. She can't do anything. And as we said before, Carla Giugino just nailing this, nailing, kind of losing her mind, flashing back to the past. They do a great job with her physical appearance changes to show the deterioration. And I thought it was very cool that the Jesse of her mind looked perfectly the way she looked as she arrived at the cabin the whole movie but then they're panning to the jesse on the bed who's getting increasingly worse off yeah it played well because it gave you right there visually the difference and you can compare there were times because she's so beautiful even without makeup where you're looking at her on the bed thinking man she still looks 
hot. Pretty good, even when she's getting dehydrated, her lips are getting cracked. But then when they show the comparison, this is what she looked like a day ago. You're thinking, oh man, I really have a sense of time and how urgent it is for her to get out of here. She's dying. Wonderful job by her. And then we have Gerald Burlingame, the husband, played by Bruce Greenwood. I am quickly becoming a huge Bruce fan. Got to really know him in The Resident and got to see his acting chops. I like the fact, and I won't get too deep into this, but I like the fact that they changed his character in The Resident. It was a little too much in the beginning. I wanted to like him. He had to play such drastic stereotypes and then make this change where it's believable and slow over time and he still doesn't flip-flop completely the other way. Yeah, you have to be an amazing actor. I started to admire him then and have seen him in a couple of things since. I've loved all of them. But just as a PS, and I'm sorry that I got to do this, I'm not sure what his actual age is in real life, except that he's getting up there. He's 15 years older than Carla Giugino. He looks amazing. He does. In this he movie. Was fit. Oh I was my like, God. I hope I look like that at his age. <laughs> you know that saying, like, once you buy a car, that's all you see on the road is your car? Mm. That's what I feel like with Bruce. I really got to know him as an actor in The Resident. And now I'm starting to realize, oh, he's been in so many things. Yeah. I just never noticed. I think he's popping up more recently, though, as main actor type roles or bigger characters within things. That happens often with actors and actresses. You hit this age where now you're really, you fit that role so well that you get more jobs at that age. Mm-hmm. And as we said, he's looking good for whatever age he is. So keep it going. You know, he has to portray some pretty difficult things. And we'll talk about this more as we get into the plot. But the depiction of him having a heart attack Mm. could have been really caricaturish and stupid. But it wasn't. It was terrifying how accurately he showed this. Yeah. First, he's like short of breath and kind of like moving his shoulders around a little bit more. Then he's actually bringing his hand up towards his chest. Then you start to see the cords and muscles stand out on his neck and his back straighten. I mean, physical acting here is incredible. But then I'm going to move on to kind of the third of our main-ish characters, and that's the Moonlight Man, played by Carol Strukin. We find out in-universe in the show eventually that his name is Raymond Andrew Joubert. He's just referred to as the Moonlight Man throughout. And at some point, Jesse states that he suffers from a disorder called acromegaly, which causes enlargement of the hands and feet, as well as the forehead and chin. It's also why he's so tall. Well, it turns out Struken, who portrays the Moonlight Man, does actually have this disorder in real life. He has acromegaly. It's very rare. About six per 100,000 people get it. And it results from excess growth hormone after the growth plates have closed. So if you get it in childhood, too much of the growth hormone, it turns into gigantism. Mm -hmm. But if it's later on, once that's all kind of shifted into place, it's acromegaly. Wow. And there's sort of two different effects. I mean, this comes with a lot of other things besides the enlarged head and hands. There's joint pain, thicker skin, deepening of voice. Oh, I can only imagine. I remember vividly growing pains, what we all have naturally, how achy my bones were. Mm-hmm. Imagine that times a thousand. Plus I'm it can often lead to tumors that have to be removed that cause other issues because this growth hormone just keeps going. Wow. Now, I guess if they do get things like that and get surgery or treatment, it, there's no cure, but their lifespan can be as long as somebody who does not have this. Okay. 
However, <laughs> while there are some physical changes in appearance, it is drastically exaggerated for the movie, how the Moonlight Man looks. I mean, they have prosthetics on his head. They've changed the color. They've re- really exaggerated things. But also, I mean, keep in mind, the Moonlight Man we see in cuffs at the end of the movie is completely different than the Moonlight Man we saw when Jesse was having psychotic episodes, you know, when she was freaking out. Her mind was playing tricks on her. So you can imagine, and it would, I think the same would happen to me, someone that looks that different now put into a scary situation with a dog eating your husband. Here's this giant man, and you're having a psychotic break? He's going to look as scary as they made him look. (laughs) Yeah, and I read somewhere a good indication. There are times where he's not there. Jesse's just imagining him there and how terrible it would be. Whenever you see him with his eyes glowing, yeah, means he's fake. He's not there in that moment. Did he come twice? Yes. One night and then the following night. Yes, because she sees the footprints. That's right. That's how Gerald starts to convince her he's real, that she actually saw it before but was choosing... To ignore it, put it out of her head, and he's telling her, look at the blood, look at the floor. So he had come that first night, and then he comes the night she escapes, that you think that's going to be it. He's going to take her. Now, why did he come twice? Because we we find out that what he does is he kills men in their sleep, right? Mm -hmm. Not women. That's why she survived. So he already knew... Well, he doesn't kill them. He Eventually, he moves up to killing somebody before he's arrested, but what he does is defile their bodies... So he had started off taking fingers, toes, ears, kind of trophies from dead bodies, primarily males, and storing them in this box and very often taking the jewelry with it, which is why he's got so much jewelry in there or whatever he finds in the tomb. I believe he starts to sexually deface or even engage in sexual acts as this kind of moves up with the corpses. And at the very end, he winds up actually killing somebody. You have to assume he was after Gerald here. Because he was dead already. Yes. But they imply, A, he's already sort of been defaced by the dog. Yeah. And B, due to the interactions with Jesse, he's not sure himself if any of that's real. She's got him thinking he's imagining things. By the end, when she confronts him, he says to her what she said in the bedroom, but you're not real. You're only made of moonlight. That's right. So it was her reaction to him, I think, that really altered things. So it was just happenstance. The door was open, if you remember, in the beginning of the movie. The, again, this is when I was freaking out. I was like, she's leaving the door open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she screams at one point, which he might have heard. Ah, uh, yes. Pretty loudly. And he walks in, just stares at her the first night. Oh, but he wanted that ring. Maybe he came the second night thinking she's probably dead now. To get the I'll ring. I'll take the ring. Okay, cool. He's actually a good-looking man in real life. It, uh, that's what I was saying. It's so exaggerated, even in the scenes in the courtroom. He doesn't look like that in real life. Shruken? Shruken. All right, moving on. We have Tom, Jesse's father, played by Hen- Henry Thomas. Another man that, uh, he looks better in real life. They made him look oh, disheveled. yeah. And, they made him look pretty uh, bad here. And also disgusting, once we got to know him. Oh. And Sally, Jesse's mother, played by Kate Siegel. Well, you don't see much of her, but when they were showing her, I remember saying, oh my goodness, is that Theodora from Haunting of Hill House? But she looks so different in this movie. She actually looked a little heavier. Here's the thing. I felt like, and we probably shouldn't talk about this, but uh, I felt like in The Haunting of Hill House, first of all, she's strikingly beautiful. Oh, crazy. I could tell that I think she has an issue with weight. 
Mm. So I think that's just a real life thing. She, I think she fluctuates. I wasn't sure because they were making Henry Thomas out to look a little bit different. So I thought maybe they could be altering her appearance as well. But back to Tom, the father. Can you imagine being this actor hmm. and being told this is what you have to portray in this film? I don't know if I would be able to wrap my head around it to do that convincingly enough. And that brings you to the question of young Jesse. Yeah, I was going to ask that too. Played by Kiara Aurelia. How much was she told? Because she has to know a decent amount in order to portray those accurate reflections of fear, horror, disgust, shame. I don't think you can go through all that without her knowing this is what you're supposed to be acting right now. That's got to be, especially with Hollywood nowadays, there must have been an HR person there. And as soon as they yelled cut, came over. Are you feeling okay? Mm -hmm. How are you? Tell me how you're feeling, you know? When they're in the same scenes together, how is Henry Thomas doing this? Like, again, when they do cut, I'm really, I'm really sorry. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) This is not me. Like, Jesus. I had a question. I think I asked you during the scene. Could an actor, especially at that age, actually get true PTSD, even though it wasn't really happening? Yeah, I feel like if you're internalizing the character enough, we have heard of other movies, Exorcist being one of the big ones, where depending on what the actor is being asked to portray, Mm. it disturbs them long after it stays with them. So I'm not sure how old Kiara is in real life. She still looks pretty young. They probably aged her down, though. I have a feeling there's got to be... Uh... If you look at this picture, picture though, of the actress yeah. that we've got online. Okay, we just looked it up. She was born in 2002. This was made two years ago, so she was around 15. So she was young. Yeah, she's about 17 now, but this came out in 2017. Well, that's acting for you, right? I mean, you got to act. The thing is, she does it so amazingly. She seems kind of mature and aware even as young Jesse, yeah. but then still enough of a kid that you don't know how to process these emotions later, the shame, the guilt, when the father winds up doing what is worse, and we'll talk about that by psychologically manipulating oh, her. Yeah. And she even says it on screen, that wasn't the worst. The worst was what came later. She doesn't know how to manage that, and that's why he's able to do this to her. Well, that's it for our characters. Let's get into our plot. When we open up, Jesse and Gerald arrive at an isolated lake house in Fairhope, Alabama for some time away. While getting ready, Gerald takes a Viagra. Jesse feeds the Kobe beef to the stray dog outside, but when re-entering, the house leaves the door ajar. I thought, while very brief, these couple of opening scenes did a lot to define who Gerald and Jesse are. They're packing up for the trip. Gerald has this tiny little bag, but he's so importantly and lovingly places the handcuffs on top before he closes it. Yes. This is his whole focus (laughs) for the trip. And he's already starting to try to probe that on the car ride there. And you can tell from their first interaction that Jesse is nervous, awkward, not into this. Yes, it's a very good setup. But beyond the acting, right away with camera angles, the way they showed from above Gerald packing, just the composition of these scenes... I think that played a big part in me feeling uncomfortable. Following the car as it's driving down the road, very The Shining. Yes. Going through this deserted... You said he opens up a lot of his stories with uh, a car driving down a road. Yeah, which is kind of separating them from the rest of society. There's a natural 
danger that's reinforced and so beautifully juxtaposed when Jesse gets out of the car. She's walking around. She's looking at the beach, the two chairs sitting empty in front of the water. Everything is so relaxing and calming, but you also get the sense nobody is there. Nobody is there for miles. And Mm -hmm. Gerald even says that when they start entering into their sex game. Oh, yeah. All beautiful setup for later on. But particularly, I love when they encounter the dog. They almost run him over. Gerald is very dismissive. The only thing he thinks is, somebody should really take care of the stray dog problem. Jesse can't stop thinking about it to the point that when they get there and she finds Gerald has stocked the fridge, she takes the beef out. Yeah. Really expensive What's beef. the first thing you said when you saw that scene? And she's slicing it up on the counter. That's really good meat. <laughs> and then she takes it outside and you're like... No, she's feeding it to the dog, which is exactly Gerald's reaction. Now, I expected him to be harsher with her. He's actually sort of sweet and kind. He tells her, "Uh, do you know that's $200 a portion? But when she says, oh, I didn't realize we had so many in there. I thought it was fine. He's like, no, this is why I love you. You have a good heart. Leave it. It's going to be the best meal he's ever had in his life. Yeah. So Gerald isn't a completely bad guy. I think you needed that moment. Because he turns into kind of a monster in a couple of minutes. So what do you think? Because we don't really get a, a deep storyline about their marriage. What do you think? Do you think it's a good marriage? Or she doesn't really love him anymore? It's complicated. I think they both do love each other. The spark has gone out. They've reached a certain time in their marriage. At first, I was willing to give Gerald a little bit that he's just trying to liven things up. But A, you find out it seems like there's probably been other women. Yes. B, he's only interested if things are kinky. And C, when you get to the point of it's not just kinky, but he actually has stranger rape fantasies that he wants fulfilled. Okay, none of this is great. We're getting more and more worried. But he is not listening or acknowledging anything that's going on with Jesse here. Even when he realizes she's not into this and wants out, he pretends like he doesn't know. He pretends like she's still acting. This is morally reprehensible. You really crossed a line. And this is the part later where she starts remembering. Gerald provokes her to remember that he told the joke that one time at the business party. What is a woman? Dot, dot, dot. And she says to herself, for the first time, I thought, who did I marry? Her father. Well, almost like, who did I marry? There's this side of you that is really dark Uh, and terrifying that all of these years together, he says, I hid it so well, I never let you see it. So they're starting to put that on the table. They do give her the backstory that because of her trauma, she has reenacted sort of the daddy issues, if you want to call it that, married a man that's much older than her, who's supposed to be there to support and protect her, but there's other issues happening. I don't know. He's very gray. And you have to remember that the majority of the Gerald we're seeing Mm -hmm. for this movie is the Gerald that's in Jesse's mind. Right. Who knows if he even would have said any of those things. I don't think he would have. It's her perception of him. Based off of what you said at the top, it's not even her perception of him. It's her perception of her three other friends in life. Kind of. They they meld things into Gerald. Yeah. Yeah. And even when he's being gross or bringing things up that are bad... There is a purpose to help her survive. So when he tells that joke, a woman is a life support system, she's like, oh, life support. He's getting her to think about the fact that time is ticking by. So her brain has subconsciously triggered memories that will help her accomplish what she needs to do. But we start to see the problems here already. Once Jessie goes inside, she changes into a new nightdress, placing the tag on a shelf above the bed and prepares while Gerald takes a second Viagra. 
and leaves his glass of water on the same shelf. A second Viagra yeah, within, what, crazy. a half an hour? Is he nuts? Well, here's the thing. Uh, at first, I was like, yeah, Gerald, you're being an idiot. Why would he even do that? But then I started to think about it. I think the Viagra isn't a new thing. It's not. He's become very comfortable with the Viagra. And that's why he took the second one. It wasn't one of those character tropes where, oh, we just need him to do it. He's dumb enough to do it. I think he just, you know, you get comfortable with something. You take two aspirin every day for two weeks because you hurt yourself, right? So at the end of two weeks, you're like, I'm going to take three right now. Mm-hmm. You don't even think about it because you think it's safe. If that's a Yeah, which it makes sense. He has that conversation with her about how he used to try to hide it in the beginning and then she found it and now he just takes him and doesn't worry about it. Yeah. But A, they haven't even gotten into sexy time yet. Sexy time. I mean, it's a little bit preemptive. And B, there are a lot of dangers with Viagra. You should know that. Especially at that age. He then proceeds to restrain Jesse with one handcuff on each wrist locked to the bedpost. She seems a bit surprised by this, but goes along. And this is when he begins enacting his fantasy, telling her to scream for help, knowing no one will hear. She half-heartedly plays along, but soon becomes uncomfortable, telling him to stop and uncuff her. He replies, what if I won't? Which leads to a heated argument. He the- accuses her of not even trying to rekindle their relationship, and she keeps trying to tell him she is, but not like this. These scenes made me so uncomfortable because I felt what she was going through, you know? And also I felt that unease, like that embarrassed feeling too. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what makes you think about Gerald as a bad person. Because in the beginning, okay, it's a little uncomfortable. It's a little awkward or trying something new. But we do find out they've done things like this before. It continues to escalate. She's not into it. And he pretty much knows she's not into it, which is not okay. Do you remember I yelled, like, why don't they just, like, play nurse? <laughs> Can't Damn she it. just dress up for him <laughs> yeah. or something? But if we as an audience are able to tell, it's getting to a point where you're like, oh, she's saying no. Like, oh, yeah. this is done, and he's been her husband for however many years. He certainly knows that, of and course. he's choosing to ignore it. Body language. She should be able to read her body language at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, it gets to the point where she has to freak out and knee him in the balls. And that's when he really, like, he stops and he, he's saying, you're making me feel like an idiot. And Maybe that's what caused the heart attack. <laughs> the balls. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Well, either way, he's shortly into this speech about how their relationship isn't working when he suffers a massive heart attack. This is the acting by Bruce Greenwood I was talking about. As well as the shock, disbelief, fear on Carla's face. Mm-hmm. Let's play a storytelling game here. Do you think it would have been more impactful as the viewer if this was actually going off very well and they're both enjoying it? There's no fight. They're having great sex. And then he has a heart attack. Do you think that would have played? It it would have changed the dynamic tremendously. A part of me feels like we could still have it where she goes crazy and she thinks about her father. That can still be the crux of the movie. But his death and the dog eating him may have been more, more impactful. Traumatic. Yeah, because we're not kind of mad hating at Gerald him. and hating <laughs> him. We're like, oh, my God, in the panic of, like, we were just having fun. And the juxtaposition of now realizing those fun handcuffs are now really... Terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from, and I think that does play really well. You also don't have the pattern of multiple men in her life leading to her interpretation of the Moonlight Man. It's just another in the series of men. So we needed that. For for the the Moonlight Man. If he didn't exist, I would agree with you. Hmm. Uh, 
yeah, I guess you're right. He, they made him sort of one more man trying to take advantage of her. If he had been all symbolic and not real and just the portrayal of death coming for her, as Gerald does suggest earlier on in the narrative, maybe this is what people see when they're alone in their solitary death. And he was never really... It changes the whole ending of the book, but I think there is an ending that goes that way. Okay. Because it takes you more into the supernatural territory that King is not afraid to approach. Well, Gerald does die here. He falls onto the floor, leaving Jesse alone in the handcuffs on the bed. And this is when the stray dog enters. Ooh. Oh, man, that dog that was so... It's so funny, that dog. We love animals, right? And we're like, oh, what a cutie. He's just starving. That turns, that changes real quick, He huh? was a little scary, even from the beginning. Yeah. The look of him. I mean, they just picked the perfect dog for this. But I think you do need to run through that myriad of emotions. The first time I watched this, you hear the, the padding of the footsteps. Great on sound work, too, not oh, just yes. visuals. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness, now what's coming? She's stuck on this bed. Now we're going to add another layer to it. Your anxiety's leveling up. Then you see the dog come around the corner and relief washes over you. Oh, it's just the dog. Yeah. Or maybe he could even help. She even says it. You're not a trained rescue dog, are you? <laughs> no, no chance of that. And it flips so quickly. He starts approaching Gerald and you're going, oh, oh no. And then she gets that look on her face. What are you doing? Get away from him until he starts licking the blood. And you realize this is just another thing she has to contend with. This is terrifying. And you realize nature, man, that cute little dog that you have at home, if it gets bad enough, it could possibly eat you. That's what one of her manifestations says. Achilles would eat us. He's just an animal. He's doing what he needs to do to survive. And you need to stop worrying about that and do the same thing. He's not having any malicious intent here. He's starving. Talk about great storytelling. As soon as he started to creep up to the dead Gerald's body. I remembered right away the first time we met this dog, he was eating a carcass. Mm -hmm. So right away established in our brains, he's used to eating dead things, Mm -hmm. smelling it, the the blood. This is nothing new to him. It'll be really easy for him to start eating Gerald. And even when she goes to put the beef out, Gerald says something along the lines of they'll always go for fresher meat. Yes. So... That too That's as fresh as it is gets. set up in your mind. Not only that, but that once Gerald's lying there long enough, is he going to go for her? I was thinking that as soon as he took the bite out of Gerald, how and long is that going to last? Absolutely, and he did try to. Right? Wasn't he licking her feet or something? At one point later on, she thinks in her deluded brain when she wakes up that it's the Moonlight Man, and That's then right. realizes it's the dog. Uh, that scary, beautiful shot of the Moonlight Man licking her feet. Mm-hmm. No, it was the dog. And the dog is testing to see if she's dead because she's pretty much dead. Um, and she's been laying there, imagining what the dog's saying. She's been laying there sleeping, but maybe she's dead. Fresher meat. Let's give it a try. That's why he's been hanging around this house the whole time. Yeah. He's waiting for her. Also probably shelter for the first time in a long time. Agreed, but there is a point where you realize <laughs> Gerald is not fresh anymore. No. The flies are coming. He's not hanging around for more Gerald. <laughs> no. Uh, to put it crudely, she is able to put him off by throwing the book at him, but he comes back. He does take a bite. And then Gerald stands up and begins talking. What were your thoughts when you first, did you know right away? Or did you think maybe he was just knocked out? Uh, for a half a second, I was like, oh man, 
Oh, good. He's alive. And then I was thinking, well, Stephen King, so maybe now the Gerald's game starts and he's pissed off and blames her and starts to do something to her. Because I didn't read the book, so I had no idea. The acting was so well done where the way he gets up, he's like, ah, he's noticing that he was bit. So, yeah, for a second And they even put the mark on his arm. If that wasn't there, I might have known right away. But Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, shit, he just had a heart attack, was knocked unconscious, but he's not dead. (laughs) So it's all the more disturbing. It messes with your mind. That moment you realize this isn't real, you start really fearing for Jesse. She's going off the deep end now. She realizes that his body remains on the floor and what's happening. He taunts her about the truths of their strained marriage and his sexual dysfunctions and then informs her she's wasted hours already doing nothing. She's beginning to suffer from dehydration and fatigue. That's when Jesse miraculously pulls a hand out of the cuff and breaks it free. Forgot about that. She starts gloating to Gerald, but then turns around and sees herself still trapped on the bed. So now we realize we have two manifestations of her mind. One is the strong Jesse, the one who's able to just slip out of that cuff, break the bedpost, no problem. And she starts kind of encouraging her. She's pushing her in a tough love sort of way. These are the things you need to do, but keeping her going. Whereas some of the things Gerald are saying are borderline just give up. There's nothing left to do here. You're dying. Death is coming for you. There's no way you're getting out of those handcuffs. Gerald and the self-assured Jessie start to tell her things about herself and her relationship that she never had the courage to acknowledge before, and they trigger her to remember the glass of water above the bed. Now, I remembered that right away. There's certain things when you watch enough movies and, and break down enough things, just the way a camera will sit on something a little bit longer, you know that glass of water is going to come in handy later. When he did it the first time, there is a sound and a focus to him placing it above her. Yeah. But you think it's, it's meant to hone in on Gerald's face, the excitement that this game is about to begin. It's not until Jesse starts running through it, you loved the fact that he took these pills. You loved the little Mm -hmm. blue pills. And she's like, what are you talking about? The fact that these two characters come into play made it interesting. You know, the whole time, like, how are they going to make a movie with a woman just on the bed? So interesting. And that was one of the main reasons. And then all of the struggles you continually go through with her every time you think she has a win. She works so hard to get that glass of water. Finally gets it to her hands and realizes it can't reach her mouth. She can't drink. The hallucinations then remind her of the tag she put on the shelf, which she rolls into a straw in order to reach the water. Such a victory. She's bought herself some time but knows she's still in great danger. However, she's overcome with fatigue and falls asleep. So this is where we move out of the first stage, the manifestations of Jesse's mind, and into the second stage that takes us to flashbacks. First, Jesse wakes in the dark and sees a tall, deformed figure who reveals a bag of various bones and trinkets. She closes her eyes, saying, you're not real. But Gerald appears to say the figure is death, waiting to take her. He begins to call Jesse Mouse, which unsettles her. It triggers the memory of her father, Tom, who affectionately referred to her as Mouse. In the flashback, she is 12 years old, vacationing at a lake house with her family. Young Jessie says about the lake house, it's so much smaller than I remember. Her father responds, that's because you're bigger. That will come into play later on in the movie. As Jessie and her father sit alone outside to watch a solar eclipse, he suggests she sit on his lap, as she used to do when she was younger. Oh, so creepy. Uh, I don't even want to say it, but once on his lap, he starts masturbating. 
the handcuffed Jesse awakes to intense pain due to her circulation being cut off and cramping. And the flashback cuts off here. Gerald and the confident Jesse are skeptical about her claims that she dealt with the pressure of keeping such a secret. Gerald can't believe that she never told him yeah. about any of this. It's all adding up. The fact that when he was enacting that fantasy... She was not liking it, but she freaked out when he started calling himself daddy. Oh. Call me daddy. Do you want daddy? So even though it's just a projection of her mind, you can see him almost having that epiphany of why didn't you tell me something? Mm-hmm. It's such a play on your mind, too, because that's not really Gerald, but that's how Gerald would react. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she keeps saying that had no bearing on the present, but the two of them are reminding her she married a man much older than her, a lot like her father. And then Gerald starts talking about the Moonlight Man. He points out what they both know is a bloody footprint on the floor as yeah. proof that this is not something she totally came up with in her head. But she starts going back to the flashbacks, talking about the day of the eclipse wasn't even the worst of it, what he did to her out there. The worst of it came later, and you're thinking... Oh, no, there's going to be more. What's happening now? And they show this scene of her father coming into her bedroom, talking to her about what happened, ashamed of what he did ostensibly, but manipulating her into agreeing never to tell anyone. That scene was done so well, and you could see the manipulation growing. And I'm like, this is so dark, the way he's able to just control her. He flipped it on itself. Instead of being there like, you can't tell, don't tell, please forgive me. He twisted the story in her head where it's almost her fault. She'll get in trouble if she says anything. It's so sick that he thought about this. He knew if he came to her and said it that way, she would retaliate. If he's telling her, we can't tell anybody, she's going to say, I have to. Instead, he comes in saying, I think we have to (sighs) tell your mom and saying things like, I'm sure she won't think it's your fault. I'm pretty sure she won't. I mean... So twisted and disturbed. It really is worse than the previous scene. It's hard to watch as she now starts feeling ashamed and guilty and agreeing. She will never tell, not even her parents, but anyone for the rest of her entire life. And until this moment, she hadn't. However, this actually leads her to another very critical memory. After that conversation with her father, she remembers sitting at the dinner table that night and cutting her hand when she squeezed the glass too hard. Her mom had asked her, How did things go earlier? How was the eclipse? And she's just grabbing onto it so hard. But this triggers the adult Jesse to realize this is a way she can get out of here. She has a glass of water. And it leads to, I think, by far the most visually disgusting scene I've ever seen in a movie. (laughs) I feel like uh, our Clatchers, when they watch this because we said to watch it, this is the point where they're going to be pissed at us. This is when they're you yell like, at what people. What the hell? <laughs> Why are they making us watch this? This is terrible. And it seems so out of place because we've had the psychological horror and yeah. we've had a little bit of the bump in the night, things are terrifying horror. You had the body horror, of course, when the dog is eating Gerald. Mm-hmm. But they kind of minimized that. They gave you enough that it's gross and then they pull back from it. And Gerald's already dead, so there's some level of okay, this is what animals do. I mean, it's really hard to watch, but this is so different. (laughs) Now, you were not yelling at me, but you were yelling like, how are you watching this? At that point, I had acquiesced to what journey we were going on. (laughs) And I was like, I'm in now. That's it. I'm just watching it. And I'm okay up until this point. Both times, put my hands in front of my face. I saw like tiny little snippets of it and then went, nah, no, no, don't need to see that. I, the one thing I can't deal with is body horror. Ugh. 
It's so bad, too. It's like they don't even... I was thinking any minute now they're going to change the camera angle. They don't cut no, away. they just sat on it. They show oh. the entire degloving process. Ah. I cannot believe. Now, part of the problem here was it was also making me really angry. As soon as she starts going for the glass, I knew what she was going to do. But the entire movie I've been saying, why don't you break one of your bones? This is hard. You're going to wait until you absolutely can't wait anymore to do it because hurting yourself in any capacity like that is not going to be easy. No. Breaking a bone willingly is going to be super tough. But if you break that thumb bone that's causing your hand to be that much wider, it's going to shrink it enough that I don't think removing the skin is going to get you past. Like, the bone is what's stopping you. Yeah, not the skin. Not the skin. Now... They made the point a lot in the book that it's the blood, the lubrication that she needs. She says that in the movie, too. However, could you try maybe breaking the bone at first, and if it doesn't work, get a little bit of blood? Do we need to completely deglove the hand is my question. I don't think we needed to. It feels very unnecessary and unrealistic, and I almost want somebody to do a scientific breakdown. If you broke that thumb bone, couldn't you then get your hand out of that cuff? Because I feel like you could. I kept saying, and I know this is like an ignorant man thing, but I think I would have been able to break the bed because she was able to move the cuffs up to a certain height. Then there's a almost like a bump, like a ball that's in the why wood. She couldn't, but I would move it up that high because now you have leverage, right? And that's the thinnest part of the wood, and just crank at it. I think I, I'd be able to break it. A regular bed, maybe. They make it a point. Gerald says at one point that's reinforced oak. It's like a $3,000 bed. He he says something about it's not just cheap wood. Yeah. She would never, and then especially once she's dehydrated, deteriorated, her strength is gone. If she couldn't do it within the first five minutes, there's no chance. Yeah, I'm probably wrong. I just, I feel like Plus, you don't don't have another hand. Yeah. So you have nothing to grab onto. You can't use both arms. That's true. You don't have any leverage behind that. Maybe once one hand is free... But I was even starting to freak out because once she gets the one hand free, she has to drag the bed over to the bathroom so she can use her mangled hand. Uh, I don't care what you want to say here. She's not picking up the key with that hand. No. There's no no The hand does nothing. It's a dead piece of meat at this point. I mean, she has to put it in her mouth to wind up unlocking the key because there's no control. But you wouldn't be able to do anything with that hand. And I do think you probably would pass out from blood loss long before you're able to get it wrapped up. Not even blood loss, pain. Yeah, that too. Your body would just shut down. I mean, they try to say there's less nerve endings in your wrist. That's why people who commit suicide cut. But I don't care what you say, man. That process is horrid. Oh, yeah. Ah! So anyway, I just was like a little bit frustrated at the logistics. I feel like if it was me, I would certainly turn to trying to break a bone or something else before I get to this point. However, the bottom line is it works. She is able to get the hand out, get the key, unlock it with her mouth, drink some water, which is very important at this point. She even says it earlier. It's dehydration that's going to kill her first, not the lack of food, but also the blood. So she does something smart. She finds pads in the drawer to wrap it up because they're so absorbent. But she doesn't then like take a towel and put it around. That's not going to last very long, keeping the blood in, just two pads. I think she's already not able to think straight, and she did tell herself before that was going to happen. You have to move really quick because 
you're not going to last very long. And in fact, on her way out into the bedroom, she passes out on the floor from blood loss and fatigue. At that point, I was like, the dog's going to eat her because now she's bleeding too, Mm -hmm. you know? And maybe the only thing that saved her from that is the fact that we see he's scared of the Moonlight Man. So this was the, I love this, because back and forth throughout the entire movie, we're wondering, is the Moonlight Man real? And then the last time we saw him, he was licking her feet. We found out it was the dog. So it's like, okay, maybe he wasn't real. But then we're reminded here, because this is the second time we saw the dog react to the Moonlight Man being there. I'm like, but the dog wouldn't react. Why would he freak out? If he wasn't there, if he wasn't real. What a play on my brain. We got the footprint. We got the dog running away. Now you're pretty much convinced he is real. She got out of all of this, just did what she did to herself. She's going to now be killed by the Moonlight Man. This is horrible. But she walks right up to him and gives him her wedding ring for his trinket bag. And he's so shocked that he just lets her go. Well, I also think it says a lot that this murderer, this killer or weirdo, crazy guy, doesn't mess with women. Mm -hmm. So I really think he was waiting for her to die. And just wanted that ring. Well, he got the ring. Gerald's body is still in that room. Should he be wanting to do something? But I I think she really did mess with his perception. The first time she sees him, she says, you're not real. You're only made of moonlight. If you're already sort of going crazy, doesn't somebody telling you that make you start to think, is that true? What? And now the next time he sees her, she's stumbling out of the bedroom. She's bloody everywhere. You have to be thinking, am I imagining this? This can't be real. But there is a part of you that's worried. Maybe he's still coming after her. So she runs to the car. She keeps thinking she sees him behind her. She starts driving the car, but then at one point is convinced she sees him in the back seat. Oh, yeah. You do realize these representations, though. Now his eyes are glowing. By the end of that, he calls her mouse. And I am still kind of saying, well, maybe he's not real. Gerald did say he's a representation of death. And every time she's on the brink of death, that's when we see him. I was yelling, like, why are you driving? Use the phone. You're going to pass out. So dangerous. I know it was dead, but the charger was in the car. Yeah. She could have taken the phone. And brought it to the car just to charge it enough to call 911. But at this point, I guess she's panicked. She's not thinking. And she's trying to get away from this guy. That's true. So she passes out again. The car crashes into a tree. But people from a nearby house hear it and come out. Luckily. Thank God, because she would have died there. Absolutely. And in the final scenes, we move to six months later, where Jessie's writing a letter to her 12-year-old self. She talks about the hand that needed skin grafts but still isn't working right. Voiceovers and scenes describe how she pretended to have amnesia over the whole ordeal of being trapped, avoiding painful questions from the police and friends alike. She used some of Gerald's life insurance to start a foundation for victims of sexual abuse. She's feeling pretty good about the progress she's making in all of these areas, but each night... The man made of moonlight still appears to her before she falls asleep, haunting her. Her wedding ring was never found in the house. And finally, she learns in the news that a man who has acromegaly is in fact a serial killer who's been digging up crypts and stealing bones and jewels, sometimes disfiguring the faces of the corpses, particularly male corpses, which explains why he didn't harm Jesse in the house. Jesse goes to the court as the moonlight man is being sentenced and calls for his attention. She walks up to him, and he quotes what she said. You're not real. You're not real. Officer! You're only made of moonlight. Indicating he was, in fact, in the house with her at that time. He got so excited to see her. 
It was so strange. And she says, you're so much smaller than I remember, and walks out triumphantly onto the street where the sunlight is finally shining down on her. She's overcome the fear now. She's not going to have those dreams of him being there anymore. She's overcome it. She's confronted all of these. She dealt with the memories from childhood and her writing that letter to her younger self. Symbolically, Mm -hmm. we're seeing her go to 12-year-old Jesse and tell her, we can't live in this twilight of the eclipse anymore. It's time for you to step out into the sunlight. She dealt with Gerald and her relationship with him while trapped in that bed. But she was threatening to do the same thing with this Moonlight Man. She wasn't telling the cops or anybody she knew the truth about that night. She wasn't really sure about what happened with him. So the last step here, I think, was confronting him. There was a whole article about this on Screen Rant explaining the ending because the ending was very controversial. A lot of people didn't like that he wound up being a real person. Oh, really? Or that confrontation scene that she had with him. But Screen Rant says... This journey for Jesse was one of rediscovery and acceptance. She had been repressing what her father did to her, both the sexual abuse and the cover-up conversation that they had, never truly admitting it to herself, never talking about it. She's also been fighting addressing the real problems within her marriage. Across the film, all these thoughts slowly come to the forefront of creeping visions, the solitude, the encroaching possibility of death, forcing her to face the past. Everything is framed to hinge on the moment of the eclipse, where her innocence was lost. This is ground zero of her broken mental state. The ending is thus unflinchingly about addressing and learning from the past. Jesse only escapes by remembering. While the twist obviously shows that Joubert was real, there's evidently moments where it was all in Jesse's head. And we talked about that before, the times where his eyes are glowing or he's just symbolic. But the final line, you're so much smaller than I remember, brings us right back to the true focus. Jesse is free. And so the ending isn't just cathartic for our character, it's a message of hope for everyone. And I really liked, you know, they go more into it than that, but their analysis of this and why the ending worked. I have to agree. I think the ending worked. I love the fact that this wasn't just a horror movie. It had a story behind it. It had a reason behind it. It wasn't just about a a Blair Witch in the woods, you know? (laughs) The journey of one's rediscovery and acceptance. I think that's beautiful. And the guy was real, but that's not even what mattered. You know, what mattered is how Jessie was interpreting that in her mind. And when she's able to deal with all of those situations, the trauma doesn't have that hold on her anymore. She's able to move on with her life. With all of that being said, Jason, I think it takes us to our rating on a scale of one to 10 games. What do you give Gerald's game? You know what? You're going to be surprised. I actually, in the end, enjoyed this movie. I'm going to go... And I'm going to eat these words, aren't I? I'm going to go nine. But I'm not going games. I'm going nine cuffs. Because I'm dark <laughs> like that. No, I'm going to go nine deglovings. Oh, <laughs> no. Nine slices of Kobe beef. And I really hope the Clatchers didn't just skip this one this month because they didn't know anything about this movie. I really hope they went on this journey with us. I'm going to have to agree with you, Jason, and give it a solid nine games. I think everything from the acting to Flanagan's decisions on adapting the book source material, the exact right timing and length of the movie, there were no parts that felt like they were dragging and I was waiting for it to be over. There was a couple moments that were a little over the top. I don't know if we needed that level of body horror. There were some things about the escape that were a little bit hard to believe, but it's really just nitpicking. I think this was an excellent movie and even if there are aspects of that that you're uncomfortable with the fact that you can watch it and now give it a nine really says something absolutely this movie did right 
I mean, if I told you we're going to watch a movie where a woman is cuffed to the bed 99% of the movie, and that's it, that one room, you'd be like, uh, don't want to watch that. In fact, I'm having trouble. I'm recommending this to everybody I know, but I don't know what to tell them. The main crux of the movie occurs within the first 10 minutes. Do you tell them she gets cuffed to the bed? Do you tell them Gerald dies and leaves her there? Otherwise, how do you explain what the movie's about? So I've been saying they get into this kinky sexual game and she gets stuck cuffed to the bed and the rest goes into incredible psychological horror of what that character would go through. I think that's perfect. Well said. But that takes us to our MVC, our most valuable character. I'm going to go with Jesse's embodiment of Gerald. Of Gerald. Yes. Okay, well, tell me why. It, he was so intriguing. He had a couple different personalities throughout the movie in this embodiment, but they were such a good blend of helpful, dismissive, verbally abusive at times, but so interesting. And again, it's just a testament to Bruce's acting and his abs. So I'm really glad that you said that because I'm going to go with Mind Jesse. Oh, okay. The manifestation of Jesse. I really think she pushed her to make the tough decision she would not have been able to make otherwise if she didn't have this encouragement from herself. It's almost like when you know you're about to do stuff that's really hard and you need to talk yourself into it. Yeah. You know, you're going to be okay. You can get through this. This is the plan. Do this, this, and that. And that was the outward projection of that portion of your mind. I agree that mind Gerald was more complex. He had to give us Mm -hmm. all the exposition, the information, talk about things that were a little wonky, kind of be the Gerald who wasn't a fantastic guy from Jesse's memory, but also different. He was more intricate, but you wanted to cheer more at the times where mine Jesse was on screen. Would you say that Gerald was her id and the Jesse was Jesse's ego? In some ways, yes, I suppose. I always, I'm so bad at that. But you explained more... that to me a hundred times and I still... <laughs> oh, well, so Freud believed that the mind was broken up into three parts, which I think is why there's three manifestations in the book. Ah. And they are perhaps a little bit more in line with that. You have the id, the ego, and the superego. The id is responsible for all the primary drives and instincts, thoughts and feelings you have in your body. Yes, a lot of them sexual and aggressive. Freud would have taken it all back to that. Of course. But they're the more animalistic parts of ourselves that we can't just act on in everyday life because that doesn't follow social or moral codes. Even if it's something as simple, this is how I explain it to my kids in class, as you're really hungry right now and you want a pizza, but it's not acceptable to get up five minutes into class and go to the pizza shop. Right. That's not okay to do. Usually it's darker things like Gerald wanting to play his kinky sex games and not telling her about his stranger rape fantasies. Then you have the superego that's all the way on the opposite side of things. And it's your moral conscience telling you things like you should do this. You must not do that. You ought to be this way. And that was a little bit, I guess, good wife Burlingame in the books combined with other psychological things, though. Mm -hmm. Defense mechanisms like suppression, repression. We're not going to think about that. Denial. And finally, in the middle, you have the ego. The ego manages to balance the id and the superego and let you live in the real world. It gives you enough to satisfy your desires, but it does it in socially acceptable ways. That's your superego? Your ego. Okay. Your ego is the middle ground. Okay. And he says, your id wants this to go out and just have sex with everything and fight people and do all these things that aren't really good. And your superego is 
your conscience, that nobody could ever live up to all those demands it's putting on you on the other side. So the ego finds a way to balance the two things, get both needs met, and have you be accepted in the real world. So my analogy was a complete stretch. I don't think... I mean, I don't know. There are definitely aspects of a lot of those things within the characters, but they're not clear-cut one or the other. Okay. And I actually think that's what makes them good. Well, that about wraps it up, unless you have any closing thoughts on Gerald's game. No, I really enjoyed this game that we went on. <laughs> and I hope our Clatchers did as well. Next month, we will be doing It 2, T-O-O, right? No. Number two. Number two. We will also be doing It too. <laughs> yeah. It's gotten me excited about covering Stephen King, that's for sure. In November, are we doing another Stephen King are we doing the... I mean, Dr. Sleep. There's talk about The Stand coming out. We're going to have to look and see when, schedule-wise, these things are playing out and how people feel. But I would be totally on board to talk about that. And what we're going to do right before It comes out is we're going to release It 1 coverage on our free channels. And if you guys could do us a favor, let your friends know about it. Let Know about It. <laughs> <laughs> um, and point them in the direction to listen to that one. We're always uh, happy to get more Clatchers on board. And give, give you a little refresher because it one was sort of the part one when they were all kids. So you can brush up on that before we get to the part two, the darker adult story. Thank you again, Clatchers, for being, especially at this tier, Patreon members. We hope you stay with us for years to come. Till next time, this round's on me. This round is on me. <laughs> Please hang up and try again.